0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. Should immigration reform include a national ID? I'm Kurt Couchman, manager of government affairs at the Cato Institute. On your way in, you should have picked up a couple of handouts. Uh, Two of them are chapters from the Cato Handbook for policymakers. Uh, Another is a coalition letter put together by ACLU, a number of other privacy organizations, and civil liberty organizations. And uh, some limited government groups. I think the, the common theme for all of them is they just don't want arbitrary power to be exercised over anybody. Um, and uh, since we're talking about the handbook, it's, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's our comprehensive guide to what Cato Institute scholars think should be done about a whole variety of policy areas. And each chapter starts with, well, this is a short one, it's Social Security, but uh, it says Congress should and then says what we think Congress should do. It's a great resource, especially for Capitol Hill staffers, and uh, if you'd like a copy of that or any other Cato publication, you can get in touch with me uh, at kcouchman at cato.org. I also want to let you know about Identity Crisis, how identification is overused and misunderstood. It's Jim Harper's most recent book, and just like it sounds, it's a comprehensive overview of what identity means and how it can be used and misused and uh, ways of improving the way that government and the private sector deal with identity-related issues. Uh, now, today is the first of, I think, six or so Hill briefings that we're going to be doing on immigration policy. Uh, obviously, it's a big topic right now. It has been for years. It probably will be for years. And uh, there are a number of different topics that we probably will be covering over that time, uh, including issues related to border security and uh, uh, crime and immigration, whether that's a positive or negative correlation, um, aggregate ec- economic effects, and many, many more. Uh, today we have two excellent speakers. We have Jim Harper from Cato and Chris Calabrese from the ACLU, one of many issues that w- these two organizations can work very closely and very well together on. Now, I'm not moderating today. Uh, that task falls to Stuart Anderson. He is the executive director of the National Foundation for American Policy. He served as executive associate commissioner for policy and planning and counselor to the commissioner at the Immigration and Naturalization Service from August 2001 to January 2003. He spent four and a half years on Capitol Hill on the Senate Immigration Subcommittee, first for Senator Spencer Abraham and then as staff director of the subcommittee for Senator Sam Brownback. Prior to that, Stewart was Director of Trade and Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute, where he produced reports on the military contributions of immigrants and the role of immigrants in high technology. He has an MA from Georgetown University and a BA in Political Science from Drew University. Mr. Anderson. Right,
1: thanks. I'm going to be very brief, and our speakers are going to be... Uh, Fairly brief, I think, as well, because we I, we know there's going to be questions, uh, uh, particularly because there um, there is a very r- real chance that um, that this is n- no longer a theoretical uh, discussion about national ID card, but something that is going to be in legislation very very soon, uh, which means that everyone uh, who works on Capitol Hill is going to have someone who's going to want to know what. You know what's going on with that, and and, and what the ramifications are. Um, in the past, the national ID card has been called a uh, a uh, unwarranted intrusion into the 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 lives of, of Americans. Uh, others have called it uh, the sign of the beast, uh, and that's just from supporters of a national <laughs> ID card. Um, so it is a very controversial issue, but we're fortunate to have here two people who have really focused on not only this issue, but the whole gamut of, uh, of uh, privacy-related uh, and civil liberties issues related to what the government can or, or, or cannot do or should or should not do uh, as it relates to identity. Um, first, we'll hear from uh, Jim Harper who is uh, Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, Jim is the author of a book that was right here before that I was going to hold up, but <laughs> of uh, Identity identity Crisis. And um, he uh, has so many publications, we can't list them all, but uh, I will cut to the chase and say he also holds a J.D. from UC Hastings College of Law. Uh, we also have... Uh, Chris Calabres, who's legislative counsel for privacy-related issues at the American Civil Liberties Union. He also uh, is one of those people that has too many media appearances uh, uh, in which to list, so I will also cut down to say that he is a graduate of Harvard University and holds a JD from Georgetown University Law School. Uh, Jim, why don't you start us off?
2: I did not uh, Chris and I worked together on all the things. I did not know he went to Harvard. I went to uh, uCSB and so uh, uh, i 'm pretty good at time, pretty good at body surfing and stuff like that, but not, not a, quite as smart as my colleague um, thanks, Stuart and thank you, Kurt. Thank you all for being here. happy friday we 'll try to be brief so that uh, you all can um, continue your day and maybe maybe foreshorten it in the interest of good weather. We're here to talk basically because uh, a leading proposal in the Senate uh, has a national ID system in it. The Schumer-Graham proposal, which they wrote an op-ed about in the Washington Post a couple weeks ago, uh, seems to be the leading immigration proposal, and, and as Stuart said, it may be introduced very soon. It is essentially unformed. We essentially have no information about what, what the proposal is. I've scoured uh, every resource, resource I can, including... Senator Schumer's 2007 uh, book, where he mentioned having a national ID and, and de- dedicated about two pages to it. But what is really being proposed, uh, we just don't have access to. So what I want to do is briefly talk to you about national identification issues in general, uh, some of the weaknesses, some of the difficulties, some of the costs, and then I'll hand it over to Chris, who I think will continue in that theme. Uh, once we have access to, to what the actual proposal is, we'll have a better better chance to assess the proposal and determine uh, all the costs and all the dimensions of problems that will be encountered. I think that politicians, unfortunately, particularly at the federal level, have a, have a habit of saying, uh, I've come up with an idea, it's a good idea, and I'm just going to make everybody else figure it out. Well, it's going to be us having to figure it out, it's going to be you having to figure it out, and probably most importantly, it's going to be your constituents having to figure it out. And some of them, I think, will be uh, uh, quite upset when they learn uh, what they're expected to do under a national ID system. So, so what is a national ID? I, I think the definition is fairly simple, but it's, but it's worth uh, uh, hashing through just briefly. Uh, it's an identity system that's nationally uniform. It's nationally uniform in relevant part. That is, the information that's collected to create a card is uniform in relevant part, and the information on the card is uniform in relevant part. Uh, in, in conversations about other ID systems that have been proposed, things like the machine-readable zone, the bar barcode or magnetic strip on the back having the same data, regardless of what's printed on the front, regardless of, of who issues it, it's that data being uniform that that, that, satisfied, that satisfies that element, if you will. Uh, it's a card or it's a system that's practically or legally required. We have lots of identification system and credentialing systems that that aren't required. they are options that you can choose in the marketplace. Something that you have to have in order to access basic services, in order to, to drive, for example, in order to work. Uh, these are things that I think would, would, would go into making a thing a national ID card. And then finally, it has to be for identification. That is, it has to identify people a second time. It, it verifies or validates that this person was identified once before to the card issuer, and now you can take this card or this document or, or whatever it may be as proof that the person is who the card says it is. A little bit on how ID systems work. It, it's, we use them all the time. It's fascinating how we use them all the time, but we've rarely thought about them. And actually, when I went to write my book, I realized that there was almost no articulation of identification theory out there on which to work. So I spent a lot of time, and the early part of the book is devoted to identification theory. How do we know who people are the second time we see them? How do institutions recognize people? How do people recognize institutions? Uh, that's identification theory. Uh, the book, by the way, was was characterized as one of my Cato colleagues as one of the least bad policy books he's ever read. So I'm very proud of of uh, of that high praise that he was able to give to the book. Uh, it is it is meant to be pretty light. It has a lot of stories to try to illustrate all the dimensions of, of uh, identification. Pretty much free for the ask, and If you're a congressional staffer, you just email me or Stuart or Kurt, and we'll we'll make sure you get a copy of the book. So IDs are basically a communication system that communicate facts. It might be your name. Uh, It could be your immigration status. That's what we're talking about now. Many of us are familiar with using it to verify our age. I don't really have to use it that often for that purpose anymore. But but it's a three-step process. Basically, the relevant information has to be given to the card issuer. So we'll use the DMV as an example. You go into the Department of Motor Vehicles in your state, and you present whatever documents they require that prove your identity, that prove you were born, that Social Security number, whatever it is. You give them that information, they put the relevant information onto a card. That's that's step two. Basically, putting it on a card communicates it to the relying party. That is, whoever out there will look at the card in the future. And then step three is when the relying party, that is, the person looking at the ID, verifies that the card has to do with you. They look at the picture and then look at you. They look a second time and they look at you. They look a third time. When I traveled in Eastern Europe, that's, an, that's um, evidence of how old I am. I traveled in East Germany when I was in high school. And it was always interesting crossing borders because I had a passport that I'd gotten when I was 10 years old or 12 years old or something like that. I was 17. And we always worried that when the border guard looked at me the fourth time, he was going to pull me off the bus and I was going to disappear into into East Berlin. Luckily, they generally looked only three times, but they did a very careful job of making sure that the biometric on the passport, the picture of me as a 12-year-old, matched up with the person in front of them. There are weaknesses in each of these steps, that is, handing over the information to get the card. The card itself has, has security weaknesses, and the biometric check, that is, looking to see that the card attaches to the person. Probably the weakest part of, the, of this chain is the information that's collected at the, at the get-go, at the beginning. People come to DMVs often. Uh, uh, None of you did, but people regularly go to DMVs, and they present documents that are false. They might be false in some detail, or they might be entirely forged. And the DMV gives them a card that is a genuine card, obviously, but has false information on it. And that, then, they they use as a basis for continuing to gather more documents. You essentially have a manufactured identity, or if they u- used somebody else's information, uh, that's a stolen identity, or or they're uh, committing an impersonation fraud. That happens very often, and it's very difficult to prove who, pe- who people are, because the existence of a birth certificate, uh, existence of a birth certificate, doesn't prove that somebody is who they say they are. Um, When you study it, you realize that identification uh, is not a uniform thing. It's not a a thing that everybody has. It's actually a system of records that other people have about you. So some organizations identify you some way. Some organizations identify you another way. We all have multiple identities, and trying to fix each individual to a single identity is very, very different from the way we live live uh, here in the United States. A lot of governments over history have tried to tie all their citizens to a single identity, and cause all of their relationships and all of their react- interactions with government to be tied to a single identity. But that's just not the way you can live in a free country. The second step, the, the use of the card to communicate information, is really weakened by the, the problem of forgery. Now, cards have improved dramatically over the last couple of decades, so it's much harder to forge a card. Uh, when I was in college, it was pretty easy, and a lot of kids uh, would go and stand in front of in California, UCSB, a little bit of a party school, they would go and stand in front of a board that looked like a California driver's license, and someone would snap their picture, and then they'd crop that picture down, and it would be basically good enough to fool uh, most, uh, most doormen and many police officers. My roommate in college was a, was a doorman, and he had to explain to the, to the law enforcement that a card that says Fuji Film on the back is not a DMV-issued card. <laughs> the final step is tying the card to an individual. That's the biometrics. And there's lots of talk about biometric identifiers we use. Pictures are a form of biometric. Uh, Most people, when they say biometric, they're talking about machine biometrics. That is a a fingerprint or iris scan, something that's converted into digital code and then compared digitally. Well, uh, biometrics are powerful, but biometrics are untested. And I've heard regularly from uh, people who work with biometrics that there's uh, no viable biometric for a national ID system because there are so many false positives and false negatives in biometrics today. That is, you put down your thumbprint, and depending on the amount of grease on your thumb, depending on the reader, depending on the humidity, you don't get a good read. And so it's not it doesn't work the way it works with a card like this. There are plenty of people in society who don't have fingerprints, people who do a lot of manual labor, Work with caustic materials, and older people don't have don't have useful fingerprints. And of course, there are people who who um, lack sight, and they won't be able to use an iris scanner. Things like that. These questions are still completely unanswered. Although we may, in just a few weeks, be considering a biometric national ID system based on this stuff. Let me turn quickly, though, to the to some of the costs and complications, um, as if I wasn't already discussing them. Um, the the practical questions: What does it cost? What does it cost to put together a biometric national ID system? Well, we have some evidence from Real ID. Real ID is a a national ID law that passed in May of 2005, uh, inviting, in a rather coercive way, inviting states to to, uh, create a national ID. Again, the the uniformity in the card and the data system are what makes it a national ID, not who issues it. And the DHS had a cost estimate itself for implementing Real ID, and that was $17 billion dollars. Now, that's a pretty high figure. Um, Billion with a B. Billion with a B. Yeah, sorry about that. $17 billion. Um, That's a pretty high figure, but it's very small compared to what you would anticipate uh, a national ID system under the Schumer-Graham proposal costing because states have refused to implement real ID. States who have DMVs in place, they have systems in place, they have employees in place, and would just have to change those by a small increment, you'd anticipate spending $17 billion but building an all-new national identity system, perhaps at the Social Security Administration, uh, you're building it from scratch. You're building processes from scratch. You're hiring staff from scratch. Probably new buildings to serve all the people in the country in this system. And so your, your $17 billion is at least a floor, and costs probably rise to at least $100 billion. And some people I've talked to who are, who are starting to work on studies of this stuff imagine costs going much higher, $250 billion, $500 billion, to implement this system. We're talking about... Uh, bringing 250 million people through an all-new system, getting, them, getting, them, getting their biometrics collected, put into data systems, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very complex, and people don't realize this, I think. There are privacy costs, both what I characterize as in-system privacy costs and out-of-system privacy costs. Out-of-system. Once you've got the card in place and you have a standardized card, likely people will be asked to show it more and more often. You present a credit card. Sometimes they ask for some ID today. They would do it more and more often because they would know that everybody has a card and everybody has a uniform card. So it makes sense for every business across the country, every retail business, uh, to have a reader. And, and the, the middleware, it would make sense for everybody to have s- the same thing. We'd have economies of scale uh, in data collection used by all businesses and government agencies. So more and more of our lives will be tracked through our national identity system, metadata about where we've been, about what time it was when we were at a certain place, about what we were using our ID for. That would all be collected by businesses, by governments, in formats that are very easy to collapse together. And if you look down the horizon technologically, most data that's collected will be easy to collapse together in the future. Separate databases won't make much sense because it's just a matter of connecting them up. In-system privacy costs include all the data that you have to submit, including probably scanned images of your basic identity documents. This subjects the public to real security uh, concerns because there will be databases of this information. Uh, 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 Schumer and Graham in their, in their op-ed in the Washington Post said that they wouldn't have a national identity database. I wrote about it in one of the handouts that you have, the, the Cato at Liberty piece here. Uh, it's, it's theoretically possible to have a non-database identity system, but it's uh, practically almost assured that you would have a database system because you can't really uh, operate successfully. Uh, at a, at scale a non-database identity system. So we are talking about databases. If those databases are breached, if those databases are hacked, insider attacks and outsider attacks both threaten not just the personal privacy of each of each of our information in, in the in the stuff we've submitted, but it also threatens the identity system. The identity identity system we have now could be broken because all these identity documents are then made available they reside wherever once information is out there it's basically out there for good and you're not going to be able to get that genie back in the bottle our basic identifiers might be available and on on a, fuch, on a much larger scale uh, than they are today so the security issues include the fact that our identity system won't just get stronger it'll get it might get stronger but it'll get much more brittle and when it breaks we will be even worse off than we were uh, under the under the current system we have the current system we have is is not all that bad. Uh, it's pretty bad. There are a lot of flaws in it. A fundamental error of the last 60 or 70 years has been to use the Social Security number as a basic identifier. Pretend like it's private, even though it's it's public and shared. That's a problem that needs to be fixed. But basically, we have a variety of different identity systems we use. When any of you go to your, your wallets or your purses, you can go and, and open your billfold and look at all the different cards you use. They have different information on them. They have different designs. They have different security features. Some have very few security features because a single card for a single purpose, a single credential, doesn't need a lot of security features. You need those security features when you have a high-tech card that's used for everything that has lots of value attached to it. It's subject to a lot of attacks. That's a, that's a strategy to avoid. We actually do want to disperse our assets. And as I've, as I've demonstrated so many times, uh, the way we, the way we uh, protect our physical assets and putting aside our iPods, if we can, The way we protect our physical assets is to have a variety of different keys and a variety of different devices. We should protect our identification assets, that is, our our non-tangible assets, much the same way, with a variety of different identifiers, a variety of different systems, um, rather than a single national identity system. I'll turn it over to Chris to discuss some more of what we know about the proposal and, and what it would do. Cool. Thank you. Thank
3: you. Uh oh, my speech isn't going to stay on the podium, so that could make for some amusing moments. Um, thank you to Cato for uh, for having me and for holding this forum. I uh, obviously I love to talk about these issues, so I'm, I'm glad when I get a room full of people to do it to. Uh, thank you for Jim for covering a lot of this material. Um, I'm going to talk today about national IDs as permission slips, sort of like the note that you needed to get to get before you could go to the bathroom in school. It's, you know, it's a permission slip that allows you to perform the basic functions of everyday life. And these cards really are permission slips when they're, when they're as Jim said, mandatory and you know, ubiquitous. They basically invert the relationship between the citizen and the state. So all of those things that you could do as a matter of right before work, travel, perhaps own a gun, are now conditional upon the approval of the state. You've got to get one of these cards first before you can do these things. Now, this is where the people who equate the driver's license system with our current identification with with a biometric national ID are sort of missing the boat. Currently, if I want to work, for example, I can use a passport, a foreign passport, immigration documents, driver's license, federal or state ID, military ID, ID issued from a federal, state, or local entity, student ID. Voter registration card, plus my birth certificate, and a a Social Security card, or a Social Security card. That's a lot of options, different government sources and different parts of the same government. Now, a biometric national ID reduces this list to one. This has enormous consequences, bureaucratic consequences, impacts on individual communities, and also harms to liberty. Let's start with bureaucracy, because bureaucracy is always fun. Um, Jim talked about this massive system that we're going to have to to build. I call it the worst combination of the TSA and the DMV that you've ever seen. (laughs) I mean, it really is, this is a federal identification system, federal workers identifying you similar to the DMV. Now, if there are errors anywhere in the system, you've got those same DMV delays. You've got the, you know, hours to fix the problems, delays in getting benefits. These delays can come from a lot of places. You cannot have the source documents they want. Lots of folks who got caught up in Hurricane Katrina lost everything, including their birth certificate and their, or their passport, and all these relevant documents. Suddenly they are literally unable to prove their identity. And that problem has to be fixed before they can get this biometric ID card. Here's an example from the real ID days. Bill Cattarini spent 33 years with the Chicago Fire Department. He first came to the attention of a newspaper columnist because he raised a lot of money to build a, a memorial for fallen firefighters. Well, he ran into a problem when he, he wanted to renew his driver's license. It seemed that about 60 years ago, he had he'd lied. Excuse me, not 60 years ago, about 40 years ago, he had changed his birth date from 1944 to 1943, because when Bill started as a firefighter, you had to be 21 to take the firefighter exam, and it only came up, like, every eight years. So he was only 20, and he didn't want to wait eight years to, to, get, to get it. So he fudged his, his driver's license, became a firefighter, and, you know, and that was the end of the story until this real ID requirement said that we've got to make all of these systems uniform. And suddenly Bill had an error he couldn't fix, You know, countless trips to the DMV, he was unable to get it fixed. When the column was written, Bill had been driving without a a license for, like, two months. Now, imagine if Bill had been waiting to get a job. Um, These errors are not at all uncommon. The Social Security Administration estimates that its its database has an error rate of about 4%. Now, 150 million workers times 4% is about 6 million people. That's a lot of errors that have to be fixed. A lot of people that are waiting to get a job. Um, and you know, and then when you flood the system with people trying to fix their records, it becomes even worse. The bureaucracy becomes even harder. And this also has some less obvious effects for for everyone. For the error rate for non-native-born U.S. citizens in these systems tends to be about 30 times worse than the errors for native-born citizens because you know, they had to pull in information from the old INS and from a lot of different sources. So that's not just bureaucracy, but enormous potential for discrimination. I mean, if you're an employer and you face frequent hassles in hiring a particular type of lawful citizen, how long is it going to be before you just start shying away from employing anybody who even looks like an immigrant? Because it's like you just don't need the hassle. And, and that's, a, that's a real potential for discrimination. Jim has already talked about the cost potential. uh, One of the examples I like to use there, which is the Transportation Worker Identification Credential, which is a biometric ID that port workers need before they can can get a job, um, covers about a million transportation workers, and it's cost DHS so far to implement it about $1.9 billion. When you get up to a million workers, there aren't that many economies of scale. If you multiply that by 150 million U.S. workers, would be something like $185 billion. So add to the indignity that you will be paying. I assure you, this isn't coming all out of federal tax dollars. You, there will be fees associated with this. You will get to pay for your, to build your bureaucracy. Um, Jim also talked about some of the problems with biometrics and how they're untested. We'll, I'll give you another example of that, which, which would be a problem if you were a worker. The GAO reported, reported in October that the Census Department had fingerprinted all their temporary workers which is what they're supposed to do to make sure that nobody has a criminal a problem in their criminal background it's a, it's, a, it's a basic check but what they found was after two hours of training census department workers could not get usable fingerprints off of a fifth of the people that they fingerprinted so these were people who had been trained for hours and they could not get a usable print imagine the kind of print your employer is going to get or the person in HR who's never even looked at a fingerprint before. These are not easy problems. These are problems that have never been addressed. And the problem, the burden of solving them will fall on the backs of of workers. So in addition, the impacts, there are going to be particular groups who have even more, this has even more of an impact just on sort of each as an individual. Um, uh, Jim mentioned the central database. Anybody who reasonably fears having their information in a central database is going to be much worse off after this system. under this system. This is from a Wisconsin newspaper. Mary had a restraining order against her horribly abusive ex-husband who had threatened her with a gun. He had already located her once after their separation and had threatened to burn down her house. Now, Now she was starting over. She'd moved to a new town. She'd gotten a new job. She'd even remarried. But once again, her ex-husband found her, all because a police officer had searched a DMV database and given her ex the information. Now, if there's a national database, it's very hard to go somewhere and hide if your information is always accessible if somebody can get in that database. There's a reason that victims of domestic violence have long opposed national ID cards, and it's really not hard to understand it. I mean, Jim has mentioned, or I think Stuart mentioned, the the mark of the beast. There are religious groups who specifically object to being biometrically fingerprinted, and there are also a number of religions who object to all kinds of biometric capture, like photo capture. Uh, Mennonites, Amish, Native American religions, uh, some Muslim women, uh, they object to having their pictures taken. Uh, I mean, the Mennonites in Missouri actually feared that they were going to be forced to leave the country if Real ID was implemented, because it was a choice between their religious beliefs or their ability to, you know, get a license to access services. I mean, these are, these are real costs to these groups. I mean, the ultimate example of this is when these kind of systems are used to directly target individual groups. <laughs> I, I, to cite a particularly terrible example... National ID cards played a key role in, ad- in identifying Tutsis as part of the Rwandan genocide. In 1994, Hutus killed an estimated 500,000 to a million people, most of them Tutsis, many of them identified by their racial identifier on their national ID card. But perhaps the greatest fear in the United States is not so much a, is is not a genocide. Um, It's the misuse of identification systems to control the U.S. domestic population. I mean, the control over what you do and where you go can be almost infinite. The most recent example of this is a current Arizona bill that's likely to become law shortly. It requires police officers to attempt to determine the immigration status of a person whenever there is a reasonable suspicion that the person is unlawfully present. Several example, some examples of reasonable suspicion of undocumented status that have been upheld by the courts include not having proper identification and being evasive. Under the law, a person would be presumed to be in the country lawfully if they could show valid government ID or tribal identification. This sounds an awful lot like you should carry your papers around if you don't want to be hassled by the police. It's possible to carry this logic even further if you have a biometric identification card. If we build this infrastructure, our rights to movement, to buying things can be carved up and taken away. I'll give you another example. In the recent health care bill, there is a requirement that in order to participate in the health care exchange, you've got to verify your citizenship. Now, the health care exchange is not a subsidy. This is private money and a private contract between you and a private insurer. The only thing the exchange is doing is sort of bringing you all to one place, sort of like the mall for health care. But the government has interposed a verification requirement there. Now, it seems like a short step, at least to me from that, to combating illegal immigration by saying, well, let's make it hard for them to buy things and purchase things here. So let's say that you can't buy things at the mall unless you can prove your legal status. I mean, we're already saying that that immigrants shouldn't be able to buy services in this country and engage in private contracts. Well, that's not hard to do with the biometric ID system. I mean, these identity controls exist now. You don't need a pure national ID to make this happen. I mean, you see it in in air travel all the time, obviously. We're always being asked to show our identification systems. But the creep that will occur if it becomes mandatory is, I think, noteworthy and very different and I couldn't let this discussion of impacts on each of us go by without mentioning everybody's favorite system of control for identification and that's the government watch list. I mean we've got a terrorist list right now. (coughs) According to the Department Department of Justice Inspector General, it's more than a million names long. It's used as part of the air travel system, for the financial system in some cases, it's disseminated to state and local police. These largely secret lists are created or according to a secret standard with no formal process for removal. So as mission creep starts, the watch lists are right behind it, steadily increasing the state's power to decide where you can go and your danger of offending the wrong person and ending up on a list. I mean, the ridiculousness of watch lists are so great they deserve their own panel, so I won't get into too much detail, but here's just a few people who've been sort of affected by this. Jim Robinson, a former deputy attorney general for the criminal division. This is a job that that former Secretary Chertoff once held. He got a security clearance, but he gets flagged every time he travels. Apparently it's a mistaken identification, but he can't get off the list. Eric Scherfin, he's a commercial airline pilot and Gulf War veteran. He almost lost his job because he was on an airline no-fly list. And then the ultimate example of this ridiculousness, Nelson Mandela. It took an act of Congress. They had to pass a law to get Nelson Mandela taken off the terrorist watch list. Now, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm pretty sure that most of us do not have the resources that Nelson Mandela has to get off a terrorist watch list, but when you build identity systems, They get, and identity becomes a proxy for services, and you have people who have a bad identity, they can easily be denied these services. There's a reason that politicians on the right and the left, President Clinton, President Reagan, they've rejected national ID systems. They're costly, they're ineffective, they're bureaucratic. They'll start with immigrants, then they'll spread immediately to terrorists, and then who knows from who there, who knows from there where. Ultimately, though, one of the major concerns is that they're they're a tool for social control, for deciding what you can and can't do, where you can work and travel and live. Thank you.